All right, so Matthew chapter 1. Now, I've been going now for uh, about 10 months from this teaching role, and so I'm grateful to be back. Uh, I had a long journey, and I'm grateful to come back to Scripture to talk about it. We're going to be entering into the Gospel of Matthew over the course of the next several months. Um, I would encourage you to read the couple of chapters ahead of where we are. Uh, if I finish chapter 1 today, I want you to read uh, chapter 2 and 3 and the following. Just kind of find out where we are and keep reading and uh, just keep being encouraged in the Scripture. If you see something, say something. Uh, if you find something intriguing or, or exciting, by all means, please bring that to the, to the forefront. Now, uh, I asked a couple questions a moment ago uh, of who is Matthew, and I got a couple questions, a couple responses. He's a disciple of Jesus. He's a tax collector. He's meticulous. He's a note taker. Um, so those, all those things are true. Um, is there anywhere outside of this gospel that Matthew is named? This is fun fact for all. He, in fact, is not. And matter of fact, if you read the other gospels, He's referred to not as Matthew, but as Levi. So this guy, for whatever reason, has two names. Nowhere in here, in this Gospel of Matthew, is this book claiming to have been written by Matthew. Uh, we come to this name of Matthew through historical, um, being passed down through history uh, of this tradition. It was around about 200 A.D., um, Close that door. Uh, around 200 AD, where we start uh, seeing someone record down the Gospel of Matthew over this letter. Before then, it was an assumed uh, thing, but we don't see it in writing till about 200 years AD, which would be about 100 to 120 years, perhaps, give or take, after this book was written down. But all the early church fathers, all the early church practitioners, assumed that Matthew was uh, the writer of this gospel. Uh, it is only in about the 1750s and forward that scholarship and academia caught up and said, mm, we're not 100% sure that it's Matthew. But it is our, our position, it would be my position, that this book is written by uh, the, the, the man that God called as his apostle, his follower, and would later send him out as Matthew, a.k.a. Levi. Uh, we'll find out um, uh, some of the identity of the disciples and who they are, but uh, Matthew is here. Now, there are how many Gospels? Four. four. That's very good. That wasn't a trick question. I saw some of you with contorted faces. There are four <laughs> Gospels. Uh, these are softball questions, people. So there's four Gospels, right? Um, what is... Uh, what does anybody ever heard of the, the term synoptic gospel? Anybody ever heard that term? Okay, the synoptic literally means to to see. It's the gospels that see. Matthew, the Gospel of Mark, and the Gospel of Luke are considered in academic circles as the synoptic gospels, the gospels that see. These are eyewitness accounts of Jesus. John, the Gospel of John, is not viewed as a synoptic gospel. John is a unique telling of the story of Jesus, and it is purely theological. And we can see that right off the bat in John chapter 1, because the other Gospels begin at the start of Jesus' ministry, but John starts with, 
in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, and he goes on this small micro-sermon about the earth and the world and lightness and dark being in a combat zone with each other, and then as this combat was ongoing, this light stepped into the darkness, but the darkness did not understand it. Um, John, from start to finish, is a theological work. It was written, no doubt, as the latest gospel of the four that were written. John is the latest. Um, and Matthew, Mark, and Luke were written somewhere else in between. Now, Mark is the shortest gospel. Luke is the longest, which means that Matthew, uh, like he's Matthew in the middle, right? If you ever watched that sitcom, Malcolm in the Middle, Matthew in the Middle. Um, everything that Mark records, practically Matthew records, leading many academics to believe that Matthew, in fact, um, used, if not Mark, at least the source material that Mark used to form up his own gospel. However, Matthew, being the unique individual that he was, added his own flair to it. The tone and the tempo of the Gospel of Matthew leads us to believe that this was both an evangelically driven book, meaning that I'm going to tell you the story of Jesus because I want you to get saved, but also a discipleship book, meaning I want you to get saved, but I also want you to grow in your understanding of who this man Jesus is. And because of the way it is written and certain words that are used and certain concepts that Matthew uses, it is, it is accounted by most as the most Jewish of all of the Gospels. Mark was written almost exclusively, we believe, to a Roman audience. Luke was written by a doctor to one individual, and it was part one of a two-part series. Luke and Acts are chapter one, chapter two of a long, long, long book. Okay, uh, Matthew is written to a Jewish culture, or uh, at, 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 at best, a Jewish church that is primarily Jewish with some Gentiles involved. So when we read a couple things in, in Matthew, we'll kind of go, oh, we need to talk about that, because Matthew is assuming as he, that his writer has at least some concept of Jewish principles. So he doesn't explain a lot of stuff because he doesn't have to right? It would be like if, if we came in here uh, on the Sunday after the Egg Bowl, right? Now, those of you who may not be fans of college football or fans of Mississippi State or Ole Miss, you would at least know, I wouldn't have to explain to you that this is a football game based on the game of American football and go through all the details for you to know that the Egg Bowl is important, right? Matthew is assuming, because his audience is primarily Jewish, or Gentiles who are coming into a Jewish community knew these things already. Does that make sense? So when we come to Matthew chapter 1 verse 1 and we run into, of all things, a buzzsaw of literature called a genealogy, we shouldn't be surprised. Now those of you who, do y'all do uh, read your Bible in a year plans? Anybody? You get really excited around January, you have your your New Year's resolutions. I'm going to read through the Bible, and you download a game plan, or you get a chronological Bible, or a read through the year in a, a Bible in a year, and they set you out in Genesis, and uh, and then you read through Genesis, and then you hit the buzzsaw of Leviticus, right? 
And then you start reading all of these weird things that are happening. And generally around this time, early February, mid-February, I start getting a lot of questions. Hey, uh, Leviticus says, what does that mean? And I go, oh, you are still reading your Bible in a year, aren't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You got to Leviticus, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, I don't understand it. I said, all right, well, don't just get, get discouraged. But I would probably say you need to skip Leviticus, all right? A lot of people, you know, would say that about Matthew. Mark starts off with Jesus essentially at his baptism. Luke starts off with Jesus being born. John starts, whoop, at a hot mess. He's over here. Jesus is a grown man and already rolling. Uh, Matthew starts with a genealogy. Now, why? Let's answer that question. Why do you think Matthew starts with a genealogy? Anybody? Because that's important to the Jewish culture. Because the man who walks in fresh with no prompting <laughs> says because the genealogy is important to the Jewish people. Why is the genealogy important? Well, here's why. Um, all the way back, if you go all the way back to the story of Daniel in the Old Testament um, and a couple of the prophets, the people of God have become so disobedient that they literally, God says, all right, you, you have committed idolatry, you have, uh, you, have you have committed financial crimes against the poor, you have abandoned the widow, you've cre created sexual sins, your, your government is, is an absolute train wreck and corrupt. I, we're starting over. And he sends in, through his providence, the Babylonian uh, empire that takes them all out of Israel for 70 years. And for 70 years, Israel is just the laughing stock of the world. It's got no defendable cities. It's got no usable farmland really whatsoever. Um, but after 70 years, God, through the story of Nehemiah and Ezra, send back a group of people to Israel, and they start rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, start restoring the temple worship, eventually restore the, the temple itself, and they kind of kick back up on this story. Well, when they come back to start the temple, they look around and they go, hey, um, this isn't a free-for-all. You can't just volunteer up here at the temple. You have to be of the line of who? Anybody know? Levi. Levi. So who, whose family is of the family of Levi? Raise your hand. And, and like 48, 50% raise their hand. And they go, that's not right. Uh, who's your daddy? And, uh, and he goes, well, my dad's, you know, Todd, and his dad was John, and his dad. All right, well, we can trace this back. You're not a Levite. You can't serve at the, at the temple. So that, because the temple priests have to be of Levitical uh, line from the tribe of, uh, of Levi, from Aaron, the first high priest. And so uh, keeping a record of who your parents are is a clear indication of how authentic you are. Does any culture in American society do this? Think hard. It's not hard, but it's right there in the plain sight. Anybody have to track their genealogical, biological ties to their forebearers? Have they go to Neshoba County Fair? Okay. Has anybody ever been to a, a tribal nation out in the Midwest? Right? What do you absolutely have to prove to get paid you have to prove that you are at least one quarter of one particular nation or another, the Cherokee, Choctaw, whatever it is, right? You have to validate, and now we do it through blood lineage, right? But, but you have to validate who your parents are 
to prove your validity as a member of this community. So for a Jew, you had to be able to show what your line was, and it would show how prominent you should be, okay? So when Matthew steps out in Matthew chapter 1 and he begins talking, uh, some incredible things began to develop. He is trying to prove that Jesus is not only uh, a Jew by birth, but he's also of the tribe uh, or of the tribe of Judah, of the family of David, therefore valid to be not only a Jew, but to be the Messiah. And so uh, that's kind of what he's trying to prove. Now, what he's going to do from chapter 1, verse 1, on to about chapter 1, verse 17, is basically dial a long-distance phone number. All right? So, for example, if I pick up my phone and I dial the number 1, those of you who have ever traveled international, what does that mean? America. 1 is the United States, right? If you dial 092, that'll get you to Saudi Arabia, okay? But you dial 1, and that limits you, boom, immediately. You pick up your phone, dial 1, and they immediately know that where you're going to be calling is continental U.S. And then I dial 662. Now, that used to mean something in the advent of cell phone, and we move and we keep our own phone number. But 662 means what? North Mississippi. I got my phone number when I lived in Yazoo City, when area codes meant something. So I dial 1-662, and I have limited, of all the phone numbers in all the world that I could call, America. Now I'm specifically in the 662 area code, north part of Mississippi. And then I dial 590, which for me is one of the main three sub-trunks of the Yazoo County area. 590, 571, and then there's one other. 590 gets you to Yazoo County. And then 5647. It's the last four digits of my cell phone. Right? So what we've done is we've gone from I can call anybody to anybody in the United States to anybody in northern Mississippi, to anybody in Yazoo County, down to 999 options. And each number I dial, five. All right, there's only 999, six. There's only 99 options left. Four, there's only nine options left. Seven, and my phone rings. What Matthew does in Matthew chapter one is he dials down this number, right? Going, who can this Messiah be? And as he dials that long-distance number, it becomes crystal clear to the reader only one person can be the person he's talking about. So let's read through these stories. Matthew chapter 1 says this. The record of the beginning family, genealogy. Genesis means beginnings, study of, the study of the beginnings, the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. So Matthew sets right out on the start, here are my expectations, right? It's good when you're raising kids, or you're raising animals, or you're raising an academic mindset, set expectations. Matthew says, I'm going to teach you about Jesus the Messiah, not Jesus the nice guy, not Jesus the historian, not Jesus the teacher. All of those may be accurate, but specifically, you need to know that we're dialing the number to Jesus the Messiah. Make sense? He was the son of David. Okay, that's important. We'll talk about that in a moment. Also, the son of Abraham. Now, could we have started further back? Was there somebody beyond Abraham? Yeah, beyond Noah even. Who? Adam. Adam. We could have gone all the way back there. 
But for some reason, Matthew left at least uh, uh, 10 generations off. It's important to note, we're going to read three sets of 14 names, and uh, there's a lot left off. If you were to go through name by name, you'd go, hold on, hold on, hold on. Yeah, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, that's father, son, grandson. And then Judah, yeah, that's that. Uh, but then we skip a couple generations here there. Again, Matthew wasn't right writing this to us to be technically, factually correct in every area. He is a theologian. He is an academic driving at you going, I want you to believe Jesus is what? Jesus the Messiah, right? First line of, of Matthew, Jesus the Messiah. So he says this, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob. And what was Jacob's name later changed to? Do I know? Israel. Israel. The father of Judah and his brothers. How many brothers? There were 12 brothers altogether, right? And then Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Now, we need to pause here and understand something as we're building this story. Matthew, who is very interested in, in proclaiming Jesus as the Messiah, the anointed one, the one that will save Israel and the world, he is unconcerned about preserving, air quotes, a narrative. That everything around Jesus has to be just perfect. Okay? Because this story, chapter 3, or verse 3, Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Now, we have our first lady mentioned here in this genealogy, which is really, really cool. But do y'all, anybody remember the story? It's in Genesis 38, uh, if you're taking notes. But Genesis 38 records the story of Judah giving birth to Perez and Zerah by the mother Tamar. Anybody remember that story? Raise your hand high to heaven. Give me a, a two-minute or a two-second synopsis of Tamar and, uh, and Judah. Were they married? They weren't married? What? Scandalous. What happened in Genesis 38? Isn't Tamar his mother-in-law? Uh, so in a law of sorts. Yeah. Daughter-in-law. Right? Daughter yes. So Judah had some boys, and they married, the oldest boy married Tamar, uh, but the oldest boy sinned in God's sight, and God struck him dead. And according to the ritual and notion of that day, Tamar, the wife of the first son, goes to the second son, who displeased God, and the third displeased God, and the fourth was too young to, to be married. So Judah makes a promise to Tamar, when the fourth boy gets old enough, I will let him come into you, and conceive, and you can raise up a son in the name of your deceased husband, number one. And she goes, deal. Uh, but Judah did not let the young man go into her, namely because why? What was he thinking? Sister be snake bit, right? She <laughs> sleeps with three of my sons, and three of my sons are dead. Like, this is classic victim blaming, right? Like, uh, they must, she must be the problem. Like, well, bro, maybe... Maybe your sons are just rascals. And so she comes, uh, the, young, the fourth child comes of age, and she notices that he has not been given to her, and she has not been able to conceive. So she finds out through the business ledger of Judah, hey, he's going on a business trip to Houston. And so she goes over to Houston. That's not true. Um, she goes and she hangs out at the city gate where he's going to go do business, and she dresses up like a harlot, which means what? 
Yeah, right? She, she put on her best Victoria's Secret veil. And she sat out there and she kind of waited for Judah to roll by. And she had her Midnight in Moab perfume, which is Judah's favorite perfume. And he rode by. And, and she kind of did it like this and kind of fluttered her eyes. And Judah said, ha ha, I see the come hither look. I shall come hither. And uh, went in and had sex with her. And she said, all right, now, buddy, pay up. And he goes, but I don't, I forgot my checkbook, right? She goes, that's cool. Leave your staff and your seal. That is his sign of authority. That means basically his signature, uh, his official okie-dokie, so to speak. She said, leave your staff and your seal and then send back a goat to me. That'll be my payment because uh, a girl's got to eat, you know what I'm saying? She's like, got to get some milk, got to get, we're going to send me a goat. And he's like, that sounds like a deal. So he goes home, and uh, he's got a curious smile on his face, and uh, sends back a goat, and he says, look, to his servant, hey, go look for that uh, lady of easy virtue, uh, and give her this goat. Get my staff back. I need that. I, give my signature back. I need that. And so this, this, the servant goes back, and looks around, and kind of blushes a little bit and he kind of nudges one of the business guys at the gate going hey um i'm asking for a friend but where's that prostitute uh and he goes yeah you're asking for a friend and um he goes no 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 no, for real uh and the businessman goes uh bro i don't know what you've heard but this is a good town we don't have harlots that live here and so the servant sneaks back to judah and goes um good news bad news uh, good news is we got a goat. Uh, bad news is there's no harlot there. Like, don't know what happened to her. And then all of a sudden, about four or five months later, someone sneaks up to Judah and says, Judah, your daughter-in-law, Tamar, has played the harlot, and she is pregnant. And Judah snatches her up by the hair, brings her into the house, and said, you hussy. You have gone out and had sex with a man outside of marriage, and you're pregnant, and we're going to kill you. And, and she goes, well, again, there are partial truths being spoken here today. Uh, would you like me to tell, me, tell you who the father is? And Judah says, you better. And she says, well, I don't know his name, but here's his stuff. <laughs> and Judah goes, mm-hmm, interesting. Chapter 3, verse 1, chapter 3. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Hold on. Matthew, you're talking about Jesus the Messiah, the Savior of the world, and you come out of the gate with this story of Tamar, the, the half-hooker, and Judah, not when he was at his best, but when he was at his worst? Mm-hmm. Yep, sure was. Perez became the father of Hezron, and Hezron became the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Amenadab, and Amenadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, or Salmon, however you pronounce that. Do you say salmon patties or salmon patties? And question, why are those cans bigger at the top than they are at the bottom? No other cans are like that at the grocery store. Next time you go to check, salmon cans are always smaller at the bottom. I don't know why. Just check it out. It'll blow your mind, and you'll wonder why. That's free for your dollar. Then in verse 5, Salmon, or Salmon, I'm joking. Salmon was uh, the father of Boaz. Hold on. What? Who's Boaz? 
Ruth and Boaz. We had that story. Um, that's interesting. Um, Boaz was going to marry a girl named Ruth. We'll talk about her more in a minute. But who was Boaz's mama? Look what it says. The second woman mentioned. Boaz by by Rahab. Who's Rahab? Yeah, she lived in Jericho. She she was Miss Kitty. She didn't just what were a prostitute. She ran the house of prostitution, right? Her and Marshall Dillon, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, were quite the item. Uh, while yeah, when Joshua was about to lead the Israelites across into Israel to take the Promised Land, they go to a city called Jericho. And uh, they kind of get found out that they're spies. And uh, these two spies roll up into <laughs> Rahab's house. How'd they get caught there? Oh, they were just being virtuous good Boy Scouts, right? No, they were probably misbehaving is what they were doing. And they're like, well, maybe she'll cover for us. And that she did. And they're like, hey, look, we got bad news. God's fixing to wipe out your whole city. And Rahab actually says to the two spies, we knew this day was coming since y'all crossed the Red Sea and destroyed the Egyptians 40 years ago. We knew this day was coming. I believe you. I believe your God is greater than our God, and I'm a little scared of him. If I help you, will you take me into your community? And they said, yeah, let us down by this rope and put the red rope out the window and leave it there. And then when we come, we'll know not to... We won't kill your family. We'll let everybody know. Well, guess who finds Rahab desirable and marries her? A guy named Joshua. Well, the general of the community, uh, the follower of Moses uh, in leadership. And Joshua um, and Rahab get together. All right. Salmon was the father of Boaz. Somewhere in all this, Rahab plays a part. And Boaz became the father of Obed by the woman who? Ruth. How'd, how'd Boaz and Ruth get together? Do y'all recall? Where was Ruth from? Moab. She was from Moab. She was a Moabitess. We studied this several, several years ago. Uh, was Ruth um, an ideal marriage candidate for a good Jewish man? No. She was from Moab, just a terrible, terrible place. And uh, no one liked that. That was just like, it was just trashy. It was like uh, just a really gnarly, like it was like Richland, right? South Pearl. Um, uh, you don't go there. You, that's, you don't get good wives from there. Uh, I went to high school at Richland, so that's a little bit of a tease there. You don't do that. You don't go over there. You don't go over there and get a woman, and you're from Richland? There you go. Uh, you're not from the trailer park side. Are you really? Fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. We'll edit that out of the recording. Um, Ruth rolls up into Boaz's territory, and if you read Ruth chapter 3, you will find that Ruth goes to Boaz by night, and he lay, she lays down beside him, and she uncovers his, air quotes, feet, according to Ruth chapter 3. Uh, we talked through this. That was probably... Uh, a less than Christian virtue moment for Boaz and Ruth, okay? But, again, Matthew is not interested in setting the tone for this pristine story. He's saying that this Jesus the Messiah has come through this long and broken line 
And the reason why he's coming to this lone and broken line is because he needs to fix it. Okay? So, Boed, Obed by Ruth, and Obed became the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of David the king. Verse 6, Jesse was the father of the David the king. If you want to write the uh, reference down, 1 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 13, God promised David when he became king that he would, God would build David a house, not a, not a, not a brick-and-mortar house, but a, a house made uh, of eternal value. And God would, would build his house, and there would always be a king on the throne of David that would be the king of the world, an eternal kingdom. And David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah. Do we have a problem with this relationship? Uh, I've heard this taught many different ways, that Bathsheba knew what she was doing, uh, and she enticed David. Um, there, I, I hold a different opinion of this. I think David used his position of power, and Bathsheba had very little, and she was substantially taken advantage of. Uh, just this is free for your dollar. David would have been in his mid-60s, likely, and Bathsheba, uh, likely in her mid-20s. It is quite possible, based on other contextual evidence in the Old Testament, that David, in many ways, was like her godfather. He knew her. He knew her from when she was a little girl. And he looked upon her, and he had lust in his eyes for her. He had Bathsheba brought to him, and then when he was done, he sent her away. This was not a relationship that Bathsheba, I think, was looking for. Um, so I may be wrong on that, but I don't think I am. She became pregnant, and what did David do in response to finding out that she was pregnant? Ultimately had Uriah, her husband, killed. Uh, good job, David. Kind of the, the real role model we need for America today. Verse 7, Solomon was the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abihah, and Abiyah the father of Asa, and Asa was the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Jeram, and Jeram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah was the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Ammon, Ammon the father of Josiah. And Josiah became the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. Now, pause here just to kind of take a breath. The first 14 names we have in this list are from Abraham to David, the ascent to the throne. The next 14 names that we have are all kings of Israel, the sustainment of the throne, or what we can call it the stewardship of the throne. Were they all good kings? No. As a matter of fact, after the first two, most of those guys were bad mamma jammas, right? They fell off and weren't that great. But the, the middle 14 set of names is about the stewardship of the throne of David. And then verse 12, or verse 11, it tells us, at that time of the deportion of, uh, to Babylon. That story we talked about in Daniel where Nebuchadnezzar comes in, wipes out Jerusalem, takes the king. Uh, Jeconiah. Now, if you read the book of Ezekiel, you'll find this cat right up in there. Uh, Jeconiah was the king of Israel and specifically of Jerusalem when the when the exile was taking place. Uh, late in the middle of the night, when he felt like the Babylonians were fixing to take over Jerusalem, he knocked a hole in the wall, and he and several of his sons escaped out into the wilderness, and the Babylonian army caught up with them, and. As a punishment for not 
surrendering and making them run, right? You had to chase us. We got sweaty for this. Um, he lined up all the sons of the king, Jeconiah, and killed him in front of him, and then gouged out his eyes, but didn't kill Jeconiah the king. So what's the last thing that this king ever saw? His son's dying, but more bigger than that, the narrative, the ending of his family line. At least that's what he thought, right? And then they took him off to Babylon and set him on this puppet throne and said, you can still be king, you old blind, handicapped loser. You just sit over there and moan your existence, and that's where you're going to sit. Verse 12. After the deportation of Babylon, Jeconiah became the father of Shiltil, and Shiltil the father of Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel became the father of Abihud, and Abihud the father of Alakim, and Alakim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Eliud. Eliud was the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Methan, and Methan the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Joseph. Oh, now we're getting down. Joseph, the what? The husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who was called the Messiah. Now let's talk about a couple things. Look at verse 12. That last name you have in verse 12, what's, what's that name? Zerubbabel. Now, anybody know anything important about Zerubbabel other than it being a really cool name to say out loud? Anything? Anything? It was under the leadership of Zerubbabel, the air quotes, king of Israel, that the nation began to restore and rebuild the temple because the temple had been destroyed under Nebuchadnezzar, right? They destroyed the temple, and then when Daniel was in captivity, they had been praying and praying and praying for years, Daniel had been, that there would be a restoration of the temple. It was under Zerubbabel that the temple was rebuilt. Now, it's important to notate this. It was basically stone, right? There, it wasn't this elaborate building like Solomon built with you know, gold and all the silver and bronze. It was a very basic temple. It was a restoration to a lesser degree. It was, it was weak. As a matter of fact, uh, many historians say that when the captives came home, the ones that had been children when they left Jerusalem and they were watching in the distance the glint of the gold in the sunlight as they were being drug away to Babylon, when those same young children who were now 70 plus years age, in their older age, on their walkers, they come over the crest of the hill to look at the temple and they see this stone thing that they wept at the downfall of it. You ever seen some of these old homes, some of these historic communities, and you drive through and you see these old, like, rotting porches and these huge, you know, beautiful antebellum homes that are just falling apart? And you, 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 you know, if you're driving around with your, your spouse and you go, man, I bet these were beautiful. You can see in your mind what they could have looked like and what they should have looked like. But what are you seeing? Just kind of the, the drab rockness. And that is what they saw. Zerubbabel was the human analog that rebuilt the temple. God was doing it in heaven, but he rebuilt a brick-and-mortar temple, but it was very plain. Herod, way over in the New Testament when we get to him, Herod is the one that will restore it. Herod will bring back the gold. Herod will bring back the bronze and the silver and all the fancies. But Zerubbabel rebuilt the temple, but it took years and years to get it restored right. Um, but nevertheless, 
it's important to notate from, from essentially uh, verse 2 to verse uh, 15, we have this word father. Now, uh, not to just belabor the point here, but the father word here is a curious Greek word, okay? It means to, and I wrote it down, to a, a deposit seed, okay? It's unique to, uh, to the Greek language to say it that way. Um, we would say it biological father. Typically, we use that in a negative context, don't we? Right? Right. So if you find a, a single parent or a blended family and they'll go, well, yeah, he, yeah, he's the dad, but this is the sperm donor. This is the biological father. Right. So we hear those terms. So we're familiar with that idea. But the word father literally means the depositor of seed. Um, notice what it says in verse 16. Jacob was the father of Joseph. What? The husband of Mary. What, is, what, is, what has been building to this point that's absolutely missing? The term father, the depositor of the seed. So Matthew is building a theological point. We're going through Joseph's line of fatherhood, but what is he absolutely not to Jesus? The depositor of seed, right? So Mary is unique in this relationship. Verse 16, Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. So he started in verse 1, the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, and he ends verse 16 with Jesus who was born, who is called the Messiah. What does Matthew absolutely need you to understand about this Jesus? From the very start, he's the Messiah. That's the point we're going to be driving at. So when we build this story over the next 28 chapters, you are going to hear the story of Jesus the Messiah. Matthew is an eyewitness account, but Matthew is not a biography of Jesus, and it is not a historical narrative of Jesus per se. This is an agenda-driven story. So if we find something in Matthew, and we will, that doesn't necessarily factually line up with Mark or Luke or John, we should not be alarmed. Why? Because Matthew is making a theological point to bring you to Jesus, this, this Jesus the Messiah, and to grow you in this man, Jesus the Messiah. We should not be disturbed when we find things that we don't fully understand or don't necessarily line up the way we think they ought to from other Gospels. Okay? Does that make sense? Okay? That is not to say that this is an inspired text. It absolutely is. Matthew, matter of fact, among uh, all the disciples, um, brings up a, a couple of very interesting points that no one else brings up. Let's look at them. Verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations, from David to the deportation of, deportation of Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. Here's a problem. There are more than 14 generations between each of these blocks, okay? Now, there are some people who say, oh, 14 is this weird. If you use this Jewish code, it comes out to the name David, right? Well, that may be true, uh, but we don't know. We don't know. If you've heard that talk before, that's kind of where that comes from. But generally, we don't know. But we do know this. That you can go and you can add more names in this genealogy, and it won't add 14, 14, and 14. 
there's some curiosity here. For some reason, Matthew was writing, again, to a mostly Jewish uh, community, certainly Jewish in culture, uh, and they would have understand, understood not only the genealogy, but the 14, 14, 14. It meant something to them, even though I don't, I'm not entirely sure we can understand it, given 2,000 years after it was written. Completely different culture, completely different understanding. Verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Now we've got to unpack this just a touch. Um, in the Jewish culture, uh, along about the 1600s, 1700s, uh, maybe sooner, there was a blending of two things into one. It's how you probably got married. It's certainly how I got married, where um, you, if you like it, then you, as Beyonce would say, you do what? You put a ring on it, right? And you say to this one, hey, I'm going to give you this ring, and you're going to tell people that you're going to marry me. Now, are you married at the engagement stage? No. If, if she said, I don't want, she could give the ring back, and your feelings would be tragically hurt. Um, uh, but was, was it, is it a legal party foul to do that? No, it's not legally wrong. All we've done is we've made a verbal agreement, and we've, we've agreed to verbally disband that. Okay? When does the actual official okie-doke marriage happen in our culture? At the wedding, right? And uh, so you say, I do, and she says, I do, and then the preacher turns you to the crowd and says, it's done. And, uh, and, he, and then he says these magical words. What? You may now kiss the bride. Kiss the bride. And then turns the couple to the crowd and says, I now pronounce to you Mr. and Mrs., right? Is that how that generally works? All right. Give or take, there's some, there's some uh, movement in there a little bit, some wiggle room, but that's generally how we've done it. In Jewish culture, this was a two-step process, okay? Bubba would go, I really like her, and he would communicate that to the family, and the family would go, eh, is he a guy we really work, we really want on our family, okay? And they would spend a season talking about that. And they would ask your, for your references, right? Uh, they would talk to friends of your family and go, is he really an okay guy, you know, down at the deer camp? You know, is he a good guy in his business dealings? Is that something that we want to be part of? And if it's agreeable, um, then we bring you to our home and you get to meet pretty little lady here. And uh, you say to her, I would like to marry you, and you would give a gift of some monetary value to her. Oftentimes, it would be a ring. Uh, you could put the ring on the index finger, not the ring finger. I don't know why. There's some narrative as to why. I don't know why. Uh, or it could be a coin belt. Okay, we've heard there's a parable about Jesus, and there's a coin belt. This is very common in Middle Eastern cultures, even to this day. Women wear headbands that have coins on them of some substance, or would make a deposit of some great value uh, to your name and account, because there's three things that I've been told that men do in marriage. They get sick, leave, or die, right? So it's important that the man provide some benefit to the woman as an agreement, and then there is this value is placed on the mantle or somewhere prominent in the home, and there is a contract read. Will you 
yes. And you don't have to do anything. You just got to say, yeah, I, I accept that. And according to Jewish tradition, you guys are married. You're betrothed, but legally you're married. But when we finish supper, you go home, Big Daddy. You get out. You are not allowed to cohabitate. As a matter of fact, the woman is not allowed to cohabitate with any man at all. There's a room set aside for her. And so she's out. Now, why, why do we, want, we don't want her cohabitating with a man? <laughs> what happens when men and women cohabitate? <laughs> right? Right? Why don't we want that? We don't want her to come up pregnant, right? So you're out. Boom. You're gone. And so for a period of up to a year, sometimes a little longer, depending on the tradition, you would go and you'd work your fanny off, right? Typically, you'd build a home, probably onto your parents' house, right? You would, uh, I come from uh, people from North Mississippi, and what they do is mom and dad have a trailer, and they raise a family, and then uh, their kids go out and earn a living and buy their own trailers and pull it up next to mom and dad's trailer. And then you, after about 30 or 40 generations, we just call it Clarksburg or something. Um, and so there it is. That's, that's, my, that's Bruce, Mississippi. That's my people. Um, and so uh, that's what the guy would do. He'd go prepare. And then, only then, he would come back and with two witnesses, likely more, uh, but at least two witnesses, kosher witnesses, there would be a canopy and you would step under the canopy, you would step under the canopy, and then you would reread the contract. I'm going to provide for this woman. But we've been married already. We haven't consummated the marriage, but you're already married by, by the legal books. The groom would hand the ring, put it on her finger, and then the bride would walk around the groom saying, I'm going to walk around you, and then you would both be surrounded by this canopy, right? So it's a picture of I'm going to surround you with, with value. You're going to surround him with family and encouragement, and then God's going to surround us all. Then you guys would trip off to your, to your little house, and all of your friends and family would stand outside uh, beating pots and pans and singing great songs, and then you two would come out, and we go, hey! Uh, it would be a great time. Does that sound weird? Yes. <laughs> But that's the way it is, all right? Verse 18, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. So she has some, some, something of value from Joseph. But before they came together, that is to say before we've been under the canopy and we've walked around and then we've consummated, she was found with child by the Holy Spirit. Okay? Now, this is a curious thing. We, at this point... In other Gospels, we meet Elizabeth, the cousin. Mary has gone on a journey and has come back. Matthew doesn't include any of that. Verse 19, Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly, which probably, all right, so they would have could have legally stoned her to death, Mary to death, for being pregnant, um, because Joseph would be like, that's not my baby. Um, I, I did, that's not my child. I haven't been with her. Okay. Um, but he was going to do so secretly. What did this essentially mean for Mary? It means that they were going to be divorced. Um, but she would not be able to get remarried. And Joseph likely was an older gentleman. Okay. Mary was probably 13 or 14 years old. Uh, 
history doesn't tell us. Joseph could have been in his late 20s. Uh, I, I seem to think that he was probably uh, older, like in his 30s maybe. Um, by the time we get to Jesus' public ministry, Joseph is nowhere mentioned. The average death age of an of a average working adult class male was 34 to 37 in that day and age, right? So Joseph is likely going to die by this time. But nevertheless, here we have this event. He didn't want to disgrace her, so he was going to send her away silently, go work, be sad the rest of his life, and die. Verse 20, but when he had considered this, he rested on it, he slept on it, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David. A very good descriptor, right? Because we just went through that genealogy. Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Now, this is very odd. Um, if you're in Greek culture, if you're reading this as a Greek, you go, oh, yeah, Zeus came down and manifest himself as um, uh, sun rays and showers and bulls and everything else, and he would go in and sleep with, with uh, human women and have children. That's where we get Hercules and a bunch of other, like, demigods. For the Greek, that's like, that's status quo, situation normal. But for the Jew, this doesn't happen. This doesn't happen. Uh, and whatever happened in the dream that Joseph had was so significant, so substantial, so awe-inspiring that that's kind of, he's like, all right, I've got to do the right thing. God has told me to. And verse 21, the angel said to him, she will bear a son and you will call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins or Yeshua. Um, there is a current trend uh, if you haven't picked up on it yet uh, on the social medias and even in certain cultures where uh, Jesus isn't in the Bible. And if you follow Jesus, you're, you know, you're a false practitioner of the Christian faith because it's Yeshua, um, uh, especially in certain, um, uh, there's something called the, um, the Hebrew Israelites, which is a primarily African-American movement right now inside of certain Christian cults and centers. Um, uh, they really emphasize uh, Jehovah, uh, but they don't like necessarily the concepts of Jesus because that's, well, there's a whole bunch of reasons, but we'll leave those alone. Uh, so Yeshua, you will call him Yeshua, for he will save his people. Joshua, Yeshua, Jesus, same name all along the spectrum. And then he says this in verse 22. Now all of this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translates, which means God with us. Now, this is a, a, a quote from Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Uh, and Isaiah chapter 7 is a historical recording of a prophet speaking to a king of Israel and says, God wants to give you a sign that you're going to succeed ask for a sign. Whatever you ask for, God will show you. And the king, um, feigning humility, going, oh, I would never test God, was actually kind of a jerk. And he's like, no, I'm not going to test God because he was trying to put on a show. Uh, and, and the prophet's like, no, you need to, like God's telling you, pick your sign. And the king was like, no, I'm not going to. And the prophet said, all right, fine. You've tempted and tested God, but here's what's going to happen. Uh, you are going to see, and Isaiah records this, uh, a virgin give birth to a child. Now, 
The problem with that is that the word used in Isaiah can be translated as virgin, but most often is translated as a young maiden, okay, that is not of age, giving birth age, okay? Now, in our culture, if we can just talk, just kind of honest, it is not uncommon to see girls of 10, 11, 12 begin their, their normal cycle, their normal period, indicating that their body is prepared uh, to give birth to children. Now, is that, is that fairly common? Yes? Um, is that normal? Historically, is that normal? Am I know? It's not. Historically, uh, even in America in the 17, 18, and early 1900s, um, you would not, young women would not begin having their monthly menstrual cycle until they were 17, 18, 19, sometimes into their 20s. Uh, it has been scientifically proven that the more sexually saturated a culture is, the younger a young woman will begin her period. There are some documented instances in places like New York and L.A. where girls as young as five and six years old are getting their menstrual cycle. Okay? Why? Because there is a sexual awakening happening, sadly, uh, in a culture that, that it shouldn't be pushing this on children, but we're seeing that happen. So being of 13 or 14 years old and having a child is uncommon. Okay? You, you follow what I'm saying? And Isaiah says to the king, the, uh, the prophet of God says to the king, uh, a young woman who you don't think is old enough to have a kid will bear a child. That's what Isaiah said. Because Isaiah, the prophet, tells the king, you're going to see a couple things this kid's going to do. However, we get over to Matthew chapter 1, and he reads Isaiah chapter 7. He goes, that was a two-part prophecy. He was the only one to, to do that. He was the only one to record that. Mark, Luke, and John didn't record this. And he said, uh, Isaiah indicated that a virgin would give birth. There was an initial fulfillment of that prophecy in Isaiah to that king, but there was a full fulfillment of that prophecy in Jesus. We'll see that all throughout Matthew to where there's an Old Testament partial fulfillment, but Jesus is the total fulfillment. Does that make sense? Questions? Thoughts? Is that confusing? I want to be clear on this because it's going to be a common thing that keeps coming back up. We're good? All right. So he says this, She will bear a son, you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with the child, and shall bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel, which translates God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep, and he, and he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and he took Mary as his wife, but there's a big asterisk here, but he kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Now, our, our Roman Catholic friends would contend that Joseph allowed Mary to stay a perpetual virgin. She never uh, had a sexual intercourse with a man. Even Joseph, according to Roman Catholic theology, uh, I, I don't believe that. We have other brothers of Jesus, um, which our Catholic friends would say were the biological children of Joseph, um, but I don't know if that's accurate. I don't, I don't believe that to be accurate. I think Joseph had a normal sexual relationship with, with Mary after the birth of Jesus, but before this son, Jesus, 
was of purely divine interaction with the womb of Mary. All right? Now, he kept her a virgin until she gave birth. And then these last few words are kind of important. I want to end with this concept. He called his name Jesus. Joseph called the boy's name Jesus. Now, do y'all recall the story of the naming of John the Baptist? Do y'all remember that story? Mm-hmm. What, was, what was wrong with the, with the father of John the Baptist the day he was born? He couldn't speak. Why couldn't he speak? Do you remember? Because he, uh, he doubted that his wife was pregnant. Yes. And in the holy place, in the temple, he doubted the angel's message, and the angel said to him, until the baby's born, you can't speak. And became mute for all intents and purposes. And he would have to write down communication uh, for people to understand what he wanted from them. Right? And then... Elizabeth, his aged wife, uh, has a child, and then on the day of the circumcision, that is the eighth day, they would name the child. They would circumcise the child and name the child. It's a big ceremonial event. And they said, what are you going to name the boy? And they turned to the mute, <laughs> right? And he writes down the name John. Hmm. And they were like, John, none of your none of your family's named John. You gotta name him like Roy or Martin or you know, some weird family name. That's what you gotta do. And he says, mm, mm, mm. And when he said that the boy should be named John, his tongue was let loose and he began to speak about the wonders of God. By the way, he never got to tell the story of what he saw, because he was mute. So for the first time in nine months, he goes, hmm, hmm. John, and I'm going to tell you, I saw an angel in there, and y'all thought I was crazy, and I'm not, right? Uh, The boy's father naming the child is a big ceremony, right? You understand that? It's a big part of the ceremony. And Joseph holds up this little eight-day-old baby and says, his name will be Jesus. What was he doing? He was identifying this child as his. I'm going to raise this child. I'm going to be this baby's daddy. What did the community think? Because Mary didn't travel around on this pre-Jesus evangelical church tour saying, I conceived Jesus as a virgin. No, that was her secret. That was her, if I want to put it this way, her burden to carry. What did the community think about her? Yeah. What did the community think about Joseph? The fact that he didn't divorce her when she was pregnant out of marriage. Yeah, he gets stuff out of order. Joseph ain't right. Joseph and Mary had to bear the burden of people's condemnation of their relationship for their whole life. Okay, Now, having a child out of wedlock does not mean what it used to mean. Even when I was a kid, to have, you know, it was whispered in hushed tones. Now it's, it's, it's far more socially acceptable, but this is what Mary and Joseph had to endure. Joseph, this is a guy who can't wait. He's not a man of righteousness. Mary, mm, she's a little too easy. And they had to carry that burden. But Matthew is going to set up this story in such a way that Jesus comes to humble people who will obey and listen, even if it means self, great self-harm to themselves. All right?
All right, let me pause.